Mythic Leopard, Dynamite Panda, Charming Kitten, Ocean Lotus. No, I didn't just start listing off my favorite Magic the Gathering cards. These are all names of hacking groups. Specifically, they're all names of groups that tend to lead cyber attacks towards governments with an insane amount of resources to back them up. Today, we're going to take a trip to Russia, strictly story-wise, where I'm going to tell you about one particular group that's gained a lot of notoriety, a group called Fancy Bear. But don't let the name fool you because this group brings anything but a good time to those that are in their crosshairs, from journalists to the Olympics military wives to presidential elections, Fancy Bear always seems to pop up and wreak a little bit of havoc or a whole lot of chaos. So today in the second episode of what I think is just going to end up being an ongoing series about APTs, I'm hoping to shine a light on this bear for those of you that might not have heard of him. I'm John Cordes, and today I'm inviting you to join me while I explain what the shell of Fancy Bear is and why they're so dangerous. Before we get into the episode, I do just want to do one small plug, and that's for my own store. I want to thank anyone that's chosen to buy some of the merch that I've got available. I've got t-shirts, I've got stickers, patches, beanies, little things like that. And it really means a lot that anyone would go out and buy something that I made. Like, just the fact that there's only been enough for me to cover the cost of a podcast is truly amazing to me because I never expected it to get that far. If you weren't aware that that was all there, you can check it out at store.whattheshellpod.com. But all the shirts are available in either the Classic logo or the Wireless Rebellion logo. And I'm happy to say that there's something that I'm comfortable wearing, which is all I really wanted to bring you. Something that I'd wear myself for any other show. So go take a look if you'd like. Alright, let's start, because I'm really itching to get into this. A brief refresher for you to get into the mindset of this episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about APT which stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. The United States government technically defines an APT as an adversary with sophisticated levels of expertise and significant resources. They go on to say that they don't typically go for the one-off hacks, they'll prefer to take a long-term approach. Some of the identifying ways that they characterize them are that they tend to establish a foothold in the network and will pivot where they can, trying to take any information they can get along the way. Sometimes they'll aim to impede critical aspects of a program, company, or even a mission that they can get in the way of. Other times, however, they just sit and wait. They'll make sure that, at the precise time and situation they want, they'll launch their attack in a way that the US government defines as, quote, with determination to maintain the level of interaction, to execute objectives, and with a capability to adapt to the defender's efforts to resist. Alright, that last one was a little bit of a mouthful, so let's just say that basically they're groups of hackers with advanced tools and tactics far above that guy that you follow on TikTok who claims that he can hack anything. They'll spend millions of dollars on the dark web to buy exploits, and use them before anyone else even knows that they exist. Sometimes when they use these exploits, it's the first the whole world has ever seen of them, and those are called zero days. So how do we really differentiate them, though? Because there's a lot of these groups out there. Some of them are even multiple groups in the same country. Well, think of every bad TV show that you've seen with a serial killer. Those killers might have a calling card, a signature style, or even a fingerprint. Well, likely a fingerprint. These same concepts can be applied to what are called TTPs, Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures. 
Every hack can be broken down into tactics, which might be how the APT would behave at the top level. Like, how do we do the recon and their initial access methods that they use? Then you'd add in the technique. That's where they start to really go in deeper and apply some of the technology to those tactics. So hypothetically, you've started to use your specific tools and scanners to scan the environment that you're trying to infiltrate. Or maybe you're starting to try and fish for people that you've identified are the best targets. Then there's the procedure, how the final product is accomplished. This is where things get really technical. Did they use some stolen account credentials to start making fake transactions in the event of compromising something like a bank? Do they use it to create a method to obtain persistent access so they don't ever lose the connection to the network? All of those TTPs can be thought of as pieces of a fingerprint or signature of a threat. Since it takes a lot of work to hack major organizations like this, things do often get reused quite a bit too. It gives the attacker a little bit of a playbook that they can run through, but it also allows us, as defenders, to recognize those patterns and act accordingly. The MITRE attack framework offers a very comprehensive list of how these TTPs can be mapped to certain groups and how they can be used in conjunction to go deeper into your network. I highly suggest that anyone in the field go and take a look at that site because as you move up, you're definitely going to see it mentioned time and time again. And in terms of that calling card that I was talking about with regard to serial killers, well, sometimes they'll just straight up tell you who they are in the process of a hack, especially if they're trying to extort you for money. The more they can scare you with a name, the more it means that you might actually comply. And with those names comes a certain amount of power. Some parts of the industry establish these names based on their own findings, and you'll often see stuff where maybe one particular APT has multiple names. That's just because a couple different countries or organizations might refer to them different internally, so that makes its way out into the world. And you've got what we were talking about at the top of the hour, which is many different names for one APT. Alright, I think that's enough of a primer. Today we're here to talk about APT-28. Maybe the best bear, probably the worst bear, but as they say, it's up for deliberation. What kind of bear is best? That's a ridiculous question. False. Black bear. Well, that's debatable. There are basically two schools of thought. Let's start with who are they? Well, like I just said, because of a wide breadth of researchers, they have a couple different names. Pondstorm, Sophacy, Sartim, Strontium. It all comes back to this same group, and the name we'll be using today, Fancy Bear. You'll hear a lot of different bear-based names for groups coming out of Russia. That's just a common theme that's been assigned to them. Fancy Bear has a habit of focusing mainly on less disruptive cyber attacks. That's not to say that the attacks aren't a major impact, it's just less likely that systems would be going offline during the attacks. They'll aim at phishing attacks where possible, try to harvest any credentials to make their way in, and try to be pretty lightweight to tiptoe their way around. A lot of their interesting work also tends to come in the follow-through of their hacks. After their attacks, they'll start to leak data or spread it online, and once that really begins and they want to move the data that they've got, they'll pretty frequently pose as hacktivists or shroud themselves in different kinds of fake online personas. And they've got a bit of a reputation of doing false flag attacks. So 
Let's start going into them. Let's look at the attacks that they've done. See if you've heard of any of them. For round one, we're going to take you back to the mid-2010s, and I'm going to tell you about a couple of journalists. Let's start with someone named Masha Gessen. Masha is a Russian-American journalist that has frequently contributed to The New Yorker. She's written books like Surviving Autocracy and The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. So, to say that she's had some words about Vladimir Putin and the goings-ons in Russia is a bit of an understatement. In fact, in her bio on the New Yorker website, it talks about how she was explicitly dismissed as editor for the Russian pop magazine Vakrug Sveta for, quote, refusing to send a reporter to observe Vladimir Putin hang gliding with Siberian cranes. On a side note, I hope I don't ever work for someone that would fire me for not watching them do cool stuff. Anyways, I digress. Around 2015, a lot of Russian critical journalists started to have weird interactions and probes into their personal life. For Masha, one thing that happened was she noticed people had started showing up almost out of thin air when she went outside sometimes. And that sounds weird, because in and of itself, people appearing around you isn't anything super concerning. But it kept happening. She would go somewhere, and even though she would assume she'd be alone, people would show up. It wasn't just paranoia, though. She first noticed it because people were loudly speaking Russian around her, almost like they wanted her to know that they were there. And they wanted her to know that they were Russian. Maybe the first few times it could have been written off as a coincidence, but eventually she started to notice. The second thing that she noticed, which really took this up a level, was that it only happened at locations and times based around events in her Google Calendar. Remember what we said about how Fancy Bear likes to operate? Less disruptive on the cyber side for more disruption on the other end? Well, they'd been plenty busy in the early 2010s with phishing campaigns that were targeting journalists who might have been a little bit critical to Putin and Russia. With her having lived the life and really learned the ins and outs of Russia, its government, and its history, it came as no surprise to her because, in her words, this was a, quote, classic KGB intimidation tactic. Elsewhere, a Russian TV anchor wasn't immune from this either. A man named Pavel Lobkov was the target of a data leak attack. Instead of the tactics that were used against Masha, Fancy Bear took a little bit more of an active approach against him. They'd stolen swaths of messages from his personal device. He'd been a bit of a beacon at this time, too, having come out publicly as fighting against HIV. Just a few days later, over 300 pages of texts, Facebook messages, and personal material had come out, just to the public at large. It seemed for him that every part of his private life was now public, and that was a rather large follow for him to have to deal with. A cybersecurity company, SecureWorks, put together a report on this behavior as it seemed to be pretty consistent, very targeted, and able to be attributed to the same group time after time. They'd found that the group had targeted over 200 people, including journalists, bloggers, and politicians. And through this, we saw that even back in the 2010s, Russia had it out against the Ukraine. It's not something that's ever really just started up, it's always been there. Because in that list of targets, around 30 different media personalities and organizations in the Ukraine. The biggest target in that case was the Kiev Post, a predominant news supplier for the country. They'd been targeting them for their reporting on the front lines of Russian-involved war and conflict, likely in this case because they were showing footage and reporting on the truth of what was happening and not the story that was being fed out to the people at large. The end goal of that whole operation specifically was 
almost certainly intimidation. At the behest of a Russian government, these hackers were getting in, supplying critical information about the journalists to their own government, then letting Vlad and crew try to scare the journalists away from reporting on them ever again. And I have to imagine that it was scary. If you're a lone journalist that was targeted here, you might not see the bigger picture right away. You don't know how deep they got into your personal lives, if they'll appear to you in person, or what kind of escalation they might take. Or maybe you do see the bigger picture, and you know exactly what they'll do to you because you've seen it done to four or five other journalists. It's a fear tactic, but there's a reason it keeps being used. It works. And it never really stops either. There's always journalists being targeted by the Russian government, so Fancy Bear always has a thing that they can do to help. Let's move over to Germany around the same time. In 2015 and 2016, members of some of German's political parties started to receive messages that maybe looked a little bit normal and as something that they might expect to receive, but in hindsight, it should set off some red flags. Some of those messages would be people posing as NATO officers. Those texts and emails that they'd be getting would be claiming to have information from a politician on current conflicts, which at the time involved a coup attempt in Turkey and an earthquake in Italy. In reality, the people communicating this were members of Fancy Bear that had created false identities to help lend credence to the messages that they were sending. The end goal being to get into these people's personal or work devices and start moving around from there. That attack isn't singular to this either, it's something that happens with every major event. In the pandemic, at the start of the Ukrainian war, every election, people will pose as someone trying to look a little bit legitimate to either make some money off this or make some money off of you. That attack took place over many months. I think it's one of the benefits of cyber attacks really is that if you spread it out enough and you're patient, then it can look like normal chatter or fall into background noise. Or sometimes it might even just sneak through the barriers that have been put in place. It's all about patience. That technique that they were using in this instance, the idea of creating specifically fake identities to subvert the idea that these were Russian hackers and instead make people think that they were legitimate officers in NATO, isn't something that they did just once. They used that tactic just a couple years later, over in the United States, but maybe to a slightly different tune. In early 2018, five American women would be going about life as normal until they received bizarre and threatening messages. One of them, for instance, read, Dear Angela, Bloody Valentine's Day. We know everything about you, your husband, and your children. We're much closer than you can even imagine. The senders of the messages claimed to be from the Islamic State militants. And obviously those threats got a lot of attention, as I'm sure they showed their husbands who then had to show their chain of command and eventually it would get out and into the mainstream news causing days and days of reporting on the topic and a large outrage from many people online against the Islamic State. Liz Snell, who was married to a Marine, found that the Twitter account she often used for a charity that was operating for military spouses? That one got hacked. In the time it was under control of someone else, it posted death threats, and not just to other spouses, but to people all the way up the chain of command, all the way up to former First Lady Michelle Obama. There wasn't a huge concrete goal here beyond what I think a lot of people know Russian hackers for these days, misinformation. And frankly, I think they succeeded. Those weeks, there were many discussions online about how the Islamic State had been hacking accounts and making threats. Any talk about Russia might have been muted a bit to bring that up front. 
people online were outraged. Shocking, I know. And it made the rounds. But one of the things that misinformation campaigns really rely on is a lack of follow-through on you. The reader, the listener, the viewer, whatever. Think about it like this. There's this guy, Joe Twitter user out there. Joe does not do a lot of reading on the news, but he spends a lot of time online and is very active on social media. Maybe Joe sees a tweet about this, or someone shared an article and he's outraged. How could they do that? Target innocent military wives. I'm Joe, and I'm going to reshare this and add some colorful language too, because I want you all to know what I think. So now, everyone that I know that follows me is going to see it. And because maybe some of them value my opinion, they feel the same, so they retweet it. Even if only one or two people do it, it then opens up their whole circle to this. You misinform, you rinse, and you retweet. This story effectively has a life of its own at this point. Now fast forward a month, and an article comes out about how this wasn't actually the Islamic State. It was Russia. Maybe the article title was something like, Threats from the Islamic State Originated in Russia. Me, Joe, who doesn't really read articles, might not even remember my retweet. Certainly don't go and retweet the new article, or post any kind of retraction. After all, my opinion doesn't really change that much at all because of that, and for many, the story won't change until someone else tells me directly. The damage has been done, and that's what's being relied on here. That initial frustration, that initial outburst, with absolutely no interest in retraction or follow-through. It all ties back into those tactics that Fancy Bear likes to employ. Less disruption up front, for more later. And wow, it works. Let's skip up a bit, and talk about one that you've definitely heard of before. We're going over to 2016 for a presidential election. Back in that 2016 election, a major issue came to light when it became clear that personal email systems were being used for government purposes with regard to the Clinton campaign and positions. That's not really what we're going to discuss here, but it felt like a good starting point. This time around, Fancy Bear had their sights set on a big target. They decided that they were going to go after the Democratic National Committee. Within a week of the operation beginning, many members received this email that read, Subject, someone has your password. In the body, it said, someone has your password. Hi, John. Someone just used your password to try to sign into your Google account blank at gmail.com. It gave some details like the current date, the IP address that it allegedly happened from, the location. In this case, it said it was from the Ukraine. Then it went on to say that, quote, Google stopped this sign-in attempt. You should change your password immediately. Change password. And then a link that read change password would appear, but ultimately it wouldn't end up going to the Google account. I've got a screenshot of that email log on the website, whatvishalpod.com, so go ahead and check it out if you want to see it. One of the recipients of this message was John Podesta, the former White House Chief of Staff and Counselor to President Obama. To their credit, whoever maintained that email went to confirm and was sent the proper link to change Podesta's email, but instead they clicked this malicious bit.ly link instead. And that bit.ly link was a link to a fake Google password change, which would ask for a current password and a new password, and that single link would spawn what were known as the Podesta emails on WikiLeaks, a series of emails that made it obvious that government discussions were taking place on personal email infrastructure. And the attacks didn't stop there. They were expanded on to target more and more members of the Democratic Party, 
It's a major snowball effect where just one click on a link can lead to what was arguably one of the biggest blows in a presidential election to date. The emails were seen as a major blow to the Clinton campaign. I remember that at that time, it was hard to go into any kind of political discussion without someone discussing the emails. Many people thought it would blow the lids off many a conspiracy, but I don't think it really got that far. There were a couple conspiracies that kind of really brought out the nut jobs, but I don't want to give those attention. What I'm saying is that phishing might seem like it's a bit of a joke, especially when most of the time it comes as a spam message that looks like a shopping site or sex sales site, but when it's directed right at you, it can be the tip of a long and dangerous spear. What's actually really interesting in my opinion about this hack is that they weren't even the first Russian APT to be in the DNC. After the hacks, the Democratic National Convention brought in researchers from CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike offered investigative services to figure out how the hacks took place, and what they found was insane. While they had determined that Fancy Bear had breached the network in April of 2016, they also found identifiers in their process that pointed to Cozy Bear having been on the network since mid-2015. Cozy Bear is a separate APT altogether that has ties to the Russian government, but at this point, now you've got two bears in a network. Sounds like a bad joke waiting for the punchline. The cyber forensics team didn't just make those assumptions, though. They'd ultimately end up confirming it with multiple intelligence agencies. And honestly, I can't stop picturing two burglars running into each other inside a store, or that Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other. One of them says Cozy Bear, one of them says Fancy Bear. Can you believe that not one, but two bear-based APTs were in the DNC network at the same time? I mean, I know they're a big target and that effectively invites attempts on attacks, but come on. The reason we're able to somewhat confirm that they weren't even aware of each other is that they ended up stealing almost the same information on each side. There's absolutely no reason for both hacking groups to steal the same usernames and passwords and files if they know the other one's already in and doing the same thing. That kind of activity is just inviting security controls to realize that something is wrong. That's not to say that Fancy Bear didn't try to use any of their own tricks. What's the one thing that we've been harking on over and over as a favorite tactic they use? False flag and identity fakes. Enter Guccifer 2.0. Guccifer 2.0 was a fake person that was invented by Fancy Bear and the Russian government. Specifically, he was invented with help from the GRU, a Russian intelligence agency. The reason this is Guccifer 2.0 is because there was a hacker named Marcel Lazar Lahel who is Romanian that went by the name of Guccifer, so he was Guccifer 1.0. They piggybacked off that for a story and created Guccifer 2.0 and alleged him to be another Romanian hacker. He claimed to not be Russian and to not even be able to read or understand Russian. That's going to be important later. On his WordPress post that he put out to the world, he claimed that he, a lone hacker, took over the DNC network. The blog included some images of the documents that he claimed were stolen from the servers, including one titled, quote, The Donald Trump Report. On a side note, I kind of wish I could read what they had to say on that one, but I also imagine that we've already all experienced it, so maybe not. Thing is, none of the news agencies were really able to verify the claims that were coming from Guccifer 2.0. That didn't mean that Fancy Bear and the GRU would back down. In the public eye, Russia was denying any involvement in the hack, but on the back end, Guccifer 2.0 was continuing to drop data leaks, despite not being entirely honest about what was in them. At one point, he claimed to have released documents from the Clinton Foundation that would, without a doubt, show corruption and malfeasance in the Foundation. Ultimately, that one was a hoax. 
And again, I'm wondering if this was to distract, spread misinformation, or just prolong the attack. In reality, it was probably a little bit of all three of those things. We would end up finding some big tells that tied this attack to Fancy Bear, and that tied Guccifer to Russia. So, let's start with the Fancy Bear side. In the email that they used to fish way back at the start of this, there was bit.ly links. One thing I'm not sure that they were aware of at this time was that you can tell when a bit.ly link was created. So, after an analysis on all the links that they could get their hands on, investigators found that the bit.ly email links that were used for phishing were all created between the prime hours of 9am and 6pm Moscow time. So just another day at work, I guess. Another big clue came in the form of network traffic. Forensic experts here determined that Guccifer, in posting his documents, primarily used a Russian-language VPN. Interesting that he doesn't quite speak or understand Russian, but he can operate a Russian-language software. That's normal, right? But really, if you think about it, that's not a lot of evidence. And the cyber industry knew it. A lot, and I mean a lot, of security researchers started to work on trying to find real attribution to Guccifer 2.0 and tie them to Fancy Bear or the Kremlin. When looking for metadata in the emails, that's basically little pieces of information that talk about the structure of the email, where it was sent, how it was crafted, little back-end details, right? Well, that all ended at the same data center in France. But a break did come when they identified that VPN client that was being used to log into Guccifer's own servers to post those documents. Because once or twice he slipped up, and didn't log into his VPN before he connected to upload things. By logging in from his normal address, they were able to find a real Moscow-based IP address. That is a solid piece of evidence and foundation to stand on. By getting that particular address and working with intelligence agencies, they were able to say confidently that Guccifer was a GRU officer, working out of a headquarters on, and I'm gonna get this really badly butchered, but on Grzodubovoy Street in Moscow. This is the same group and organization that intelligence agencies had attributed to Fancy Bear. They suspected that this is where they operated out of, they suspected Fancy Bear was a part of a GRU, and everything here now becomes full circle when you look at it from above. Fancy Bear did the hack. The moment that the news started being published about it, one of their officers activated the Guccifer 2.0 persona and tried to draw attention away. They slipped up, and now we have attribution. The last interesting bit that we have in that case was that Guccifer 2.0 wasn't even done after we found out who he was. They just handed the identity to a new Russian GRU officer, one with a little bit of a better grasp of the English language. Presumably, that let them continue work on the false flag attacks, and took away the suspect that they had in place. Then, four years later, they started up again. You probably heard about it a little bit more in 2020, but Russia kept going after our election areas. In particular, Fancy Bear kept at its old tricks. That election cycle, Microsoft noted a large increase in the number of attacks coming to election officials, election-adjacent companies, and anything that might get them within spitting distance of having an impact. To me, what's interesting is that in addition to those old phishing styles that they did, they also added new techniques to their approach this time. Where previously we know that they wanted to just fish someone and steal their credentials, this time they were found to be trying to brute force or guess passwords as well. It's not difficult, there's software out there like one called Hydra that can brute force passwords for web applications. The things you just need to be concerned about are locking out the account by accident with the wrong password too many times, or tipping someone off that you're doing it. What they could, and likely did do, was automate it. 
You can set the password guessing to stop after a certain number of attempts, and then wait for a little bit longer to try to reset that counter. You would repeat that over and over until hopefully you got the right password or someone realized what was happening. By automating that aspect of the attack, it would free up other GRU officers to try to perform different attacks if they wanted to. The words of John Holtquist, the FireEye director of Intel, really stuck out to me when he was talking about this. He talked about APT-28, Fancy Bear, being the one to worry about. They knew that people were going to come after the election. It's always going to be a problem. But APT-28, well, to him, they have the history, the motivation, and the means to actually interfere. They pose a real threat. And that might be one of the bigger last times that we've heard of them, but they never really went away. They just kept switching targets, and we weren't in the crosshairs anymore. We've seen glimpses of them, or some of their other monikers in the last few years. As you might expect, lately they've been going after organizations and nations that are supporting the Ukraine. They've been going after military targets, Ukrainian media, even EU and US foreign policy think tanks. It's not surprising they're trying to stall little pieces where they can. It seems right up their alley. I should note, though, that it's not the first time they've gone after the Ukraine. Like I mentioned earlier, they went after the media, but they've also targeted the military, specifically in 2014 and 2016. They used a specially crafted malware for Android devices. They made a malicious version of an application that's purpose was to control howitzer targeting data. And if anyone in the Ukrainian military downloaded it and tried to use it, it would render those howitzers effectively unusable. Now, Russia's effectively crashing that ability to shell from a distance with artillery. And in the end, they suffered around a 15 to 20% loss because of it. I guess to close it up, we can say that there was at least some action legally here against them. In 2018, a grand jury in the Western District of Pennsylvania had chosen to indict seven defendants. All of them were officers in the Russian main intelligence directorate, the GRU that we've been talking about, which shouldn't really be surprising. The charges were for computer hacking, wire fraud, aggravated identity theft, and money laundering. At the end of the day though, what are we really going to do if they don't step foot in our country? Fancy Bear is still suiting up to do what they do, and all we can really do is be as reactive against them as possible. Fancy Bear did a lot, and a lot more than I was able to fit into this episode comfortably. So I cherry-picked some of the bigger hacks that they did. I wanted to highlight them specifically because I think they demonstrate a particular point of information that's important to get across. It's not always about the fancy exploits. They did have those, yeah, don't get me wrong, but a lot of their tactics are phishing and scamming, just weaponized. They're relying on you to let your guard down. So yeah, that annual awareness training that you've got to do where they say don't click the link is annoying, but stuff like this is why you need to do it. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for listening to me explain what the Shell Fancy Bear is. Before we go, I do want to give you a glimpse of some of the stuff that I've got in the works for the next few episodes. As I mentioned earlier, the store is still up and going strong. Thank you to anyone that's bought anything off there so far. It's not much in the way of a profit for me, but it's just about covering the costs of production for the show now, which is more than I ever wanted. Next time, we're going to be discussing some social engineering-based attacks. It's going to be a little bit more like that IoT episode I did, where it's a vignette of a couple different stories, ranging from real hacker-esque to leaving you wondering how something like that could have even happened. Because social engineering isn't always about hacking or computers or really any kind of technology. In fact, social engineering is, in my opinion, just a fancy way to say con man. So I've got some interesting stories to tell you there. 
I've also got an interview that I'm going to be recording with a professional red teamer that hopefully should come out as a bonus episode when I'm at DEF CON this year. There's more too, but I'll share that when the time's right. That's all I've got for you today. I look forward to seeing you all again in two weeks for the next episode of What the Shell.